Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. Dr. Rima Arno is an assistant professor of medicine and a member of the Baker Computational Health Sciences Institute at the University of California, San Francisco. And her area of expertise is as an adult cardiologist. Yet her work in artificial intelligence has spilled over into the pediatric world. Her vast knowledge base includes research and background with AI as a predictive tool. We began our conversation at the World Congress of Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery in Washington, D.C. recently with a discussion of a particular aspect of AI known as predictive analytics and how it applies specifically to cardiac medicine. Here's Dr. Rima Arnau. Predictive analytics, I would say, is any kind of algorithm, whether it's machine learning or otherwise, that helps us predict what's going on with our patient or what could be going on with them in the future. In 2021, you were part of a team that published in the journal Nature Medicine, and you found that ensemble learning models could really improve fetal congenital heart disease detection. Walk us through how you came to that conclusion and highlight how AI comes into play, starting with an explanation of ensemble learning models. What are those? Sure. Ensemble learning models means that we use a couple different learning models and we stacked them together like Legos. Um, So, you know, the, the real problem that we were trying to solve is how can we get better at detecting fetal congenital heart disease from ultrasound? So worldwide, ultrasound is recommended for every pregnancy at about 18 to 24 weeks to look at a number of things, to look at organ anomalies. Uh, That's when you find out if you've got a boy or a girl. But importantly, you're also looking for congenital heart diseases. Congenital heart disease is this paradox because it's both the most common birth defect and also it's still relatively rare. Complex CHDs are still less than 1% of the population. So it's really hard for physicians to build and maintain their skills at CHD detection, but the stakes are very high. This might be only 1% of the people you see, um, but those people need delivery at special hospitals. They may need surgery in the first year of life. Increasingly, there's research going on where they will try to intervene with catheters, with surgeries, with medicines during pregnancy to try to improve the outcome of the CHD. You can't do that unless you're detecting those CHDs during fetal life. So it's extremely important, affects every pregnancy, and yet, if you're not in an expert center, worldwide detection rates, so sensitivity, specificity, can be as low as 30 to 50%. So there's a huge gap between where we need to be and what detection can be in practice worldwide. That's the problem we were trying to solve. 
there had been important clinical research which showed that when you really train people, clinicians, on acquiring good images, interpreting images, when you really put them through the paces, they get much better at detecting CHD. The problem is, then you go back to your day job, you're still not seeing these more than 1% of the time, you lose that training. So we were looking to see whether computer algorithms, machine learning, whether we could train the computer to interpret fetal ultrasound imaging and detect CHD. Because computers, they don't get tired, they don't forget uh, quite in the same way. And to see whether we could use that to improve CHD detection with the goal of making that a tool that clinicians can use around the world. So really you're filling a knowledge gap with AI, not necessarily a gap, but just because of lack of practice. If you don't practice enough, you're not going to be able to see that anomaly, and that's where the AI comes into play. What did you find? So we trained our model on imaging from UCSF. Interestingly, we trained it not just on the fetal survey, which is that everybody gets a 20-week ultrasound I was telling you about, We also trained it on a more detailed type of ultrasound done by experts focused on the heart-fetal echocardiograms as well. So we trained on the specialty imaging in order to improve performance on the screening imaging. And that seemed to work pretty well. So we tested in a number of different test sets. It's like uh, the final exam for the model. And one of them we did over 4,000 fetal surveys, fetal ultrasounds, with a real-world prevalence of CHD. And the model got an an AUC, which is like accuracy, of 0.99, which is pretty high. That said, we're still testing on UCSF data. One could say that data was still acquired in an expert center. Maybe it was easier than what you might find around the world. So we've continued to work with collaborators. Now we have a nice team of centers across the country and across the world where we're working with them to continue to validate our algorithm from different clinics around the world. And is that a federated model where you push out the algorithm to each of these centers, or are the centers sending you the data? Mostly it's been the center is sending the data. So we have a system now where we can send the data to the algorithm and the algorithm can return results. What have you found? It sounds like there is potential here. Has it been replicated? Do you see potential for this to be standard at some point? Yeah, so we have started testing in more and more external data sets, so different from the ones that the model trained on. Uh, We have a preprint out in MedArchive where we worked with a group in the Netherlands who've been amazing collaborators. So the Netherlands actually does something great where they have a national protocol for these fetal ultrasounds that's always the same. And when there's a CHD detected, they put it in their registry. So they know all the CHD cases in their region, and they know which ones were diagnosed at the time of the ultrasound and which ones were missed during the initial clinical assessment but were picked up later when the baby was born. So we've tested on that data set. Now, it's interesting. It was a real test of generalizability of our model. Generalizability, just how well does the model work on data sets different from the one it was trained on? Because the data sets, the fetal ultrasounds from UCSF, they record a lot of images, 3,000 to 5,000 images per study. So there's a lot for the model to look at when it's doing its thing. In the Netherlands, in the clinics, in the rural centers and so forth, the average number of images per study that they store is like 41 images. 
Very, very different. You know, we trained our model to work based on the international screening protocol. The Netherlands uses their own national protocol. That's a difference. So despite all of those differences, actually, we tested in this Netherlands community data set. We have a sensitivity of 91%. So baby steps, no pun intended, but we're trying to validate this piece by piece. What are some of the challenges you're facing as you move forward in this research and bringing this to a clinical setting? There are always challenges. Like I said, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to the model. So even as we are validating this model, we are also internally in the lab working on making it better, more efficient. I think one of the big challenges with ultrasound is just the nature of ultrasound. Ultrasound of all the imaging modalities most common imaging modality worldwide next to x-ray, but the spatial resolution, right, then it's a noisy image. It can be acquired freehand from somebody moving the probe around. So the quality of the images you get can be very variable. The number of images that get stored is very variable. The different types of ultrasound machine manufacturers, software, all of that stuff affects the variability of the data. So that's a big challenge. And then I would like to say that uh, finding collaborators is important. I'm blessed to say it's not been so much of a challenge just because the pediatrics community is so welcoming and motivated to try to solve this problem along with us. So, you know, we have folks around the world. We have this fantastic team in the Netherlands. We're always looking for more collaborators who want to test this model in those different environments because... It helps validate the model, and it can help bring something new to those environments. If there are two words that I had to put to AI, it is data, good data, and collaboration. So you've hit them both. What are some of the opportunities writ large for AI in the medical imaging world, in your opinion? Yeah. So the two main opportunities for AI in clinical imaging, one is just to improve accuracy. So In the echo lab, you know, it's not uncommon. We get a patient referred, for example, for open heart surgery to replace a heart valve, something like that. And they come with their CD, with their echocardiogram on it. We pop it in the computer and we look at that heart valve and we say, wow, that's not severe. That's actually mild. And so the clinical decision-making and the high-stakes nature of clinical decision-making that comes from imaging and the variability of the interpretation you might get. This guy came for heart surgery and he's leaving with yeah, see me again in a year and let's check it out. It just, it boggles the mind. And so if we can have more accuracy on image interpretation, less variability from reader to reader, really turn clinical imaging into a little bit more of a science, a little bit less of an artisan craft, that would be fantastic to me. So just better accuracy. The other thing is machine learning automates analysis, right? Scales analysis. Uh, I'm an echocardiographer. I know there's only a certain number of studies I can read in a day before my brain is just too tired and I got to stop because I know, you know, I'm, I'm not paying attention like I should. Machines don't have that problem. You can start to do analyses at a scale that a human could never, ever do. And that can change how we look at quality control. It can change how we look at precision medicine analyses. My postdoctoral work was actually in genetics. And we're interested in precision medicine, these very large cohorts people are developing where we have gene sequencing on everyone. And what they want to do is they want to correlate the genotype, the gene sequence, with aspects of the phenotype, the physical characteristics. That might be height or weight or whether you have a rash or whether you have diabetes or what your imaging looks like. So they are building these cohorts of million plus people with all the DNAs already done. 
who's going to phenotype that? Who's going to read a million echocardiograms for those precision medicine studies? Nobody. But a machine could. So that's how we can power new precision medicine analyses. Even for quality control, to return back to the fetal example, one thing that we found, even in a subset of our own UCSF data, we found that there are five screening views that the guidelines require to be in that fetal study. They were not always all present. And normal studies were more likely to have all five views than abnormal studies. And one imagines, one would want to look at that more. Let me analyze every single study we've had in the past five years and just see how complete they are for the guidelines recommended views and see whether that affects diagnostic accuracy. Nobody's going to detect views in five years' worth of fetal studies as a scientific study. It's not humanly possible, but the algorithm can do it. And you can imagine putting that algorithm at a point of care. You're in the clinic with your patient. You've done the ultrasound. And before they leave, it'd be nice to get a little readout. Hey, you missed something. They're still there. You can get it. So these are the opportunities for scalable and automatable quality control. I'm just curious, how far away are we from that future state that you just talked about? I I think that automated view detection for completeness is, from a technical perspective, we can do it now. We have done it now. And it's really about the data engineering and the collaboration of implementing that on a large scale in the clinic. Are you getting the support higher level administratively for this kind of AI work that you would like and need? Or writ large, do you think administratively there is that support across the nation, across the world? I think there's a a huge interest in AI, which is exciting. Uh, UCSF has been an innovator there. And there are a lot of different centers at UCSF which are new and which are supportive of AI. The Baker Institute, where I'm a member and now a member of their exec committee, so hopefully I can help influence things, you know, really is a community of like-minded people, different use cases, but all thinking computationally about clinical problems. Another new program at UCSF is actually a joint program with UC Berkeley for computational precision health. So there are more and more, there is a community at UCSF, as you're saying, which supports this work. And so I'm just very fortunate to, to be at an institution like that. Who needs to be working with whom? I know collaboration is one of the key words in AI, but who, all, who needs to be brought to the table and who's missing from the table right now? Yeah. Obviously, you need computer scientists, data scientists, and clinicians. I find that if you just put a classically trained computer scientist in a room with a classically trained uh, clinician, there's, there's something that's lost. You need, you need people who are glue people. The clinician who knows enough about computation that they can think of problems in that way. The computer scientist who's interested enough in medicine that they've taken some initiative to learn a little bit about how doctors think. So those kind of people form the core of the, the best possible team. Uh, In addition to that, and this comes to our collaborators, we have clinical collaborators who do this every day. Once you're out of the clinic, you lose your finger on the pulse of what exactly are the problems that patients and doctors need solving. So that's really important to us. We're increasingly trying to crowdsource some of our clinician overreads or validation of what the model does. It's really interesting because it also serves as somewhat of an educational experience for the clinicians as well. So we have the infrastructure for that. The last piece is when we designed this model, we really had the world in mind. Ultrasound is a funny thing, right? There are cutting-edge latest machines that can do all kinds of fancy tricks and pictures. 
but not everyone has those machines. Then you got to think that most clinics have an ultrasound machine that might be five years old, 10 years old, and is really working on standard two-dimensional imaging. We're trying to design our solution for that standard case. We don't want to design a solution that only works if you have the latest, fanciest machine, because then you, know, you say that you're building AI, you say you're democratizing the solution, but you're not. You're just solving something for the elites already, if, if you will. So you know, with the Netherlands community study, other studies, we're trying to test our model out in the communities. Those small clinics may or may not have their data organized in a way where it's easy for us to get at it. Um, you know, we work with those folks. We help them figure out where their data was stored, figure out how to send it. All of those things are not part of the daily operations, really, of hospitals in general, but certainly not in small clinics. So that's a piece where more support, more understanding that it's time for multiple reasons, not just for AI research. It's time for hospitals and clinics to take a hold of understanding where their data is stored, how it's transferred, and so forth. I think that can help a lot of research efforts. We have health equity gaps. Can AI help to bridge those gaps? I think if it's designed correctly and deployed widely, I think yes. Like I was saying before, if you design AI that that requires the type of data that you don't find all over the world, then you can also use AI to price people out, if you will. So you just have to be careful about what your goal is and think about equity in terms of designing the solution and implementing the solution to the problem that you want to solve. What's the ultimate goal? I want to put this in people's hands. I would love to see that detection of CHD is not 30 to 50% worldwide, that it is much higher. And it would be fantastic if some of our work and work from others and the community coming together could be part of that solution. Well Beyond Medicine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nemours Well Beyond Medicine podcast with me, Carol Vassar, and our guest, Dr. Rima Arnau, Assistant Professor of Medicine and a member of the Baker Computational Health Sciences Institute at the University of California, San Francisco. What are your thoughts on AI's potential to change health and medicine here in the United States? Leave us a voicemail at nemoureswellbeyond.org. That's nemoureswellbeyond.org. That's where you'll also find all of our previous podcast episodes, including every podcast in the AI series, which we'll also put in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to our production team, Che Parker, Cheryl Munn, and Allison Misich. Until next time, remember, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go!